the Lord's churches, and that is covenanted together in unity with one accord in one place when we assemble. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That is, again, the goal, the desire, what we're seeking for in worship, and what we're commanded to seek to perform. And so we're looking at that and being reminded of that by our church covenant. We are in the second paragraph. The first paragraph, as we noted to you before, tells us how we all got here into being a part of this body. The second paragraph now is telling us, and these are biblical things as I'm pointing out to you, not somebody's idea or opinion or sound good stuff, but what we are to do now that we are here as a church. So that second paragraph reads, We engage therefore by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge and holiness and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Our subject last week was that first phrase, we engage therefore by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love. We would simply remind you that again, to walk together in Christian love is simply to be obedient to what God has called us to, and we are obedient in love, or else we have a cold, religious, formal orthodoxy. If you don't know what that means, that'd be like a monk in a castle somewhere, all isolated and all pious and all that, but not doing anybody any good anywhere. Okay, that's not what we want. We're not to live cold, orthodox, formal, religious, pious lives. We are to be all those things, but we are to do it in love. In love with our Lord, in love with one another, and in love, compassion for our fellow man. So the only way, as we said last week, for the rest of the things in this paragraph, or the rest of the things stated in this covenant, to be accomplished, achieved, or be successful at, is to, first of all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk in Christian love. If we're not going to do that, we could stop here, we could throw this all away, we could take this off the wall, and we could get about the whole thing. Because it is love that makes it work. And I emphasize that to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If we don't have love, we don't have nothing. And it don't matter what we got, it is no substitute for love, whatever it is or how much it is. Love is the only foundation for the rest of what is said here. It is the only foundation for your sanctification. It is the only foundation for worship, for glorifying God and everything we do as a church. Put it like this, it is the only foundation upon which everything else can rest upon and stay standing. The only foundation. It is, in that sense, the salt of everything else here. It is also the glue that holds it all together. So love, we cannot emphasize that enough. 
And we also emphasized last time about the word engage that shows up throughout this covenant in each paragraph. It is a pledge. It is to bind oneself with duty, with obligation, with liability. So when the Lord added us to this assembly, we automatically were pledged to Him and to one another in the things that are stated here. And this is by, of course, the ultimate binding. You have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought us all to here. He put us together in the metaphor of a building or as a body. Everyone is important if the Spirit puts you here. If the devil put anybody here, there'll be a hindrance instead of a help. There'll be the wedge that will be a problem. But if the Holy Spirit put us all here, it's all good. But remember, we're kind of foolish in thinking that there is a pure, perfect church that everybody that is there, the Holy Spirit put there, and I'm not pointing out anything anywhere, but we know the teaching of the devil sowing tares among the wheat. So we can't be negligent or naive to that. What am I arriving at that? We always all ask ourselves, could it be me? It's a good thing to consider. How did you get here? Can you look at what we've covered thus far and say, wow, just like the song says, God brings his dear children along and he brought me right here. You know, hey, hey, that's all good. It's all well and good. It says here that first thing we covered last week was to walk together in Christian love. There are four other twos in this. We're going to cover the next one today. But again, all of the other four depend upon the first one to walk together in Christian love. That second one is to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort. That is our subject for today. What does that mean? How is it accomplished? To strive for the advancement of this church. Well, the very first thing there, strive, reminds us of what we're up against. Strive. Any time you strive or anything it takes a striving to accomplish, then you're not talking about anything that happens automatically, naturally, or of its own, does it? These things that we're talking about that are Bible-based, that we are liable, responsible, and pledged to our Lord and to one another to do, take effort. It will not happen on its own. You don't sit idly by in a corner reading your Bible and the Holy Spirit just miraculously accomplish all of this for you. The Holy Spirit accomplishes it in you in conjunction with your submission, with your learning, with your prayer, and with your diligent effort. So we strive for, okay? Reminder, it takes effort, it takes input, it takes action, it takes energy, it takes time. And a lot of people don't want to be a part of this because... They feel like that robs them of their time, their energy, their effort that's better spent anywhere else. I would remind you, 
that the Bible says you can't spend any of your time, any of your energy, any of your effort, anything you've got in a more fruitful way than to the Lord and His church. So, why are we striving? Well, folks, we are sheep in the midst of wolves. That's why we're striving. When the Lord sent out those disciples, He said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Sounds like striving to me, don't it, you? What does the sheep do in the midst of wolves? Well, it don't have much ability, but it does strive to stay alive. So there is a striving. We live in a fallen world, folks. Satan rules this world down here. God rules it from up there above Satan, over Satan, but down here Satan's the God of this world. It's his show down here in that respect. And I would not have you to believe at all that God is not in control. He is ultimately in control of all things, even Satan. Satan just doesn't know it or denies that. But... I'll rest my case with the story of Job and leave it at that. But we live in a fallen world where Satan is the God, and so hate Satan is seeking to hinder any progress of any of God's people or God's church. There is a natural resistance in the world by Satan for God, his church, and his children. The prophets of old butted heads with this. Christ himself butted heads with this. And his church has always been butting heads with the natural resistance of a falling, sinful, and ungodly world. And so shall we. It is as natural as gravity and going uphill. Our job is uphill. Our job's not downhill. Our efforts to advance will be uphill and gravity hinders that. Or if we're like a boat on a river, we're going against the current of this world because of who we are, what we believe, and what we're seeking to do. Likewise, the wind is always going to be in the face and resistant to the people of God. The church is always faced with a headwind, so to speak. So we strive because everything in this world is opposing us. And this is nothing again that was not that was hidden. Jesus said in the world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to be persecuted. Literally, he was saying they hate you and everything in this world is going to be against you. So when you have a good day, that's a blessing. Because Satan intends every day to be a bad day. And every day can be a good day. It's a matter of perspective. Are we going to live it according to the devil and the world's standards or are we going to live it according to the Lord's standards? Even though we're sheep in the midst of the world, we've got the greatest shepherd in the world. And he's promised never to leave us or forsake us, to be with us through anything and everything that comes our way because it's for his glory and our good. So, just two cents worth. Don't tell me you're having a bad day, okay? And I'll try not to do the same because we have no excuse for that in that respect. The Greek word here actually for strive... There's a couple of them, but I'm going to read you one scripture that really captures this. And I'm not going to try to pronounce the word, but it is the Greek word that we get our English word for agonize. So that tells you how serious this striving is. 
I mean, if you want to read about the disciples in the storm trying to get across the Red Sea and they weren't making any headway, they were agonizing at those oars, right? I mean, so that gives you an idea of what striving means, that it is done with fervent effort and energy, but it is not an easy task. There aren't easy days for a child of God because the forces of evil are against us every day. Satan is relentless. So is the unbelieving, ungodly world we live in. Romans chapter 15 and verse 30 captures this meaning, I believe. And I'm going to read that to you. He says, uh, Paul, to the church at Rome, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Okay, and this is striving together with me in your prayers to God for me. Uh, the Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So our prayer, prayer in this sense Paul is referring to is to be such fervency that it's to be like the prayer of Christ in the garden. He was agonizing in prayer. That type of striving. So that's putting our hand to the plow and plowing through this oh ungodly world. It's an effort. So we're striving. The things that we're going to talk about today don't happen naturally. We have to work for them to get them and to maintain them, just like I told you about love, is to be cultivated all of our time. All of our time. We would like to think we get there and okay, we got it and we don't have to fight for it anymore. No, when you get to the top of the hill, guess what? There's going to be more hill. It just keeps going up. We cultivate these things because of where we are and it takes an effort. It says here we are to strive for the advancement of this church. That word is pretty simple. None of this is complicated, really. I mean, if you don't know, you can get a Webster's Dictionary and it's self-explanatory. But I'm just reminding you, stirring up your pure minds, we strive for the advancement of the church. And the first thing we probably should say there is, again, we're in this for the Lord, not for ourselves. I'm not here to advance me, are you? I hope not. We're here to advance Christ. It's Christ we want to see exalted. We don't want to see the pastor exalted. We don't want to see the church exalted. We don't want to see individuals exalted as much as we want to see Christ exalted. Because if Christ is exalted, all those other things will be exalted. We'll all be blessed when Christ has the preeminence in the church. Advancement speaks for itself, doesn't it? What does it mean? Moving. Movement. Movement. The opposite of sitting still. Moving forward. And it's kind of like taking the Lord's Supper. supper, It says as often as. Well, advancement doesn't have a speed or a speed limit. It's just moving. As long as we're moving in the right direction. We can go too slow, we could go too fast. But as long as we're moving, advancing forward in the cause of Christ, in what we've pledged, in what our duty and responsibility is, and the advancement is really dependent upon what we're going to talk about, the next three things. It is talking about growth, it is talking about maturity, and it is talking more about spirituality than it is numerical numbers. The world today, Satan's got the world blinded, churches 
blinded that advancement is in how many numbers and how many dollars is on the little board. I grew up in an EBA church and it was typical to have board up there that told uh, the Sunday service and then the BTC, the, the tr- Baptist training, whatever the quarterlies were for, for Sunday night over there. How many attended last week? How many attended today? How much money was given last week? How much was given today? Da 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 da. You know, um, and again, it, those things can get in people's head, and they look. And if the money's not going up or the numbers not going up, well, the church is not advancing. Well, in those respects, it may not be, but it can be advancing leaps and bounds in other ways, and in fact, should in that regard, because the bottom line is numbers are not where it's all at anyway. What I read to you in the first paragraph here a while back, at the day of Pentecost, the Lord added to the church such as should be saved. If we do our part, the last part's the Lord adding. We are to plant, we are to water, but the Lord must give the increase. So we need to be faithful in our part and let the Lord bring the harvest in that respect. But advancing, moving forward, And again, the focus here is that we advance spiritually. Spiritually. Okay? Not necessarily numerical, not not in tithes and offerings, not in building projects, etc., etc., etc. Spiritual always precedes everything else. If we don't have the right foundation, the rest don't matter. And three things are clearly stated here in our uh, covenant that we're looking at today, how, in, that areas that we are to advance in. And all three of these are very important, and I want you to say, see also that the order is absolutely important. This is chronological. The first one is that we are advancing in knowledge, which is reflective of what I said, moving forward, growing, maturing spiritually. Why is knowledge important? Why is knowledge of the Bible important to you? It's very simple. The Bible tells us, our Lord tells us what to do, how to do it, and what not to do, and what will come of that, right? If you don't know, you can't do. If you don't know, you can't refrain from doing. The Bible tells us all that. So without the knowledge of that, you can't do anything or many things right. Because what we think about doing and don'ting is not what God says about doing and don'ting. And that's obvious when you look around you today of what churches and people are doing and not doing, right? So knowledge, very important. The commission says what? Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And number three, seems like it just gets lost by the wayside. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's the knowledge this covenant is talking about. That is the church's responsibility, and in particular, that is the preacher, the pastor's responsibility. To teach, to instruct, to give the knowledge of the Word of God. Paul, in all his epistles, preached, wrote, 
told people the truths, the foundational doctrines of God's Word before He ever laid upon them the responsibility of doing it. In all of His epistles, that's the order you say. And, and others, done. God's done that throughout. You lay that foundation of truth and doctrine, and then the practical comes. And we'll talk about that in the second point in holiness. But again, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, a good scripture on this, says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So without knowledge, you can't do. I think I heard somebody saying something about troubleshooting a car or something in the intermission. Well, uh, that can be a big job, depending on what you know or don't know. It can be like walking around blind in the dark if you don't know. And the cars today, <laughs> that's a lot of them are that way, right? But again, if whatever the task is, whatever our jobs are, if we don't have the knowledge, then we can't perform in a very functional and adequate manner. So knowledge is absolutely the starting place. And again, let me say to you, this is what the church is here for. The church is here, the pillar and the ground of the truth for the education of and the instruction of God's people. That's the way He designed it. If He'd have wanted angels to set up the church and let angels teach people, He could have done it that way. But that's not the way He set it up. He founded it. He put apostles in it. He put prophets in it. He put pastors and teachers in it. And evangelists, you know, those offices... <laughs> And, of course, the apostles are gone and the prophets are gone and we don't have special revelation anymore, but we still have pastors and teachers to instruct God's people. This is clearly seen in Ephesians chapter 4. It tells you why the church is here. Uh, verse 11, He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. What's it here for? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, of the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure and stature of the fullness of the church. So this is the church's responsibility. This is the church's duty. And primarily this is the duty of the pastor to do so. Jesus said in the intercessory prayer, I say it to you often, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Paul said, I shun not to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Paul told those same elders at Miletus, the Ephesian elders, feed the flock over which the God hath made you overseers. What did Jesus himself tell Peter as he ended? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. That is the duty of the church and primarily of the pastor is to feed the flock. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 <clears throat> says... But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The advancement in knowledge. We often say that. That's the only time that's in the Scripture. Grow in the grace and knowledge. But it is there inferred in so many other places and so many other ways. Now, one of the greatest shames in the world 
one of the greatest embarrassments in the world is a church church membership that is not advancing in knowledge not learning not growing you must be teachable Ben and I were discussing this coming down here this morning. Some people are teachable and some people are not. If you think you know it all, you're unteachable. Unteachable. You can't teach anybody anything that thinks they already know it. None of us already know it. I don't know it all. If you you come here because you think I know it all and got all the answers, you're dead wrong. I'm sorry. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers. We preach and teach what God has revealed. But we trust God to reveal it to us, to reveal it to you in that respect. And it is a shame to go into a church where people have been there a number of years and they don't know A from Z about nothing. They may be friendly and loving as can be, and they may do all kinds of other things, but if you're not growing in knowledge, then you're not growing. That's it. Whatever else you're doing, it's pie in the sky. And we see this in the New Testament. And Paul was very rebuking, very corrective of that. I'm not going to take the time for time's sake to read the Scripture, but if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the first three verses, uh, he told them they were babes in Christ, that that was to their shame, that he couldn't give them meat. He would like to, but they weren't able to bear it. They were babies, and they shouldn't have been. The old phrase I grew up with, they've been sucking the bottle too long. They should have been weaned a long time ago and gone on. But they were not. And the desire is that you learn enough to qualify you to teach others. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, we see the similar reprimand. Uh, the God, the Christ, and called after the order of Melchizedek, verse 10, was a subject which verse 11 refers to. When the writer says, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing you're dull of hearing. You know, you're, you're not very energetic about learning, about thinking, about listening. Then he says, rebukingly, For when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason have had their senses exercised both to discern, to discern both good and evil. When I read that, that makes me think of somebody that didn't get it in second grade and they can't go to the third grade. They've got to go back through second grade again. You didn't get it. That's a shameful thing. Now there are reasons for this, and I've seen it. If you don't have somebody teaching you the Word of God, you're not going to get the Word of God. Churches fail by the individual that is doing the teaching. I have been in churches where some things were taught, some things were refrained from being taught. A pastor doesn't have that discretion. Paul said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Do we believe only part of the Bible is good? For the congregation? Do we believe congregations are different and that some parts of it are good for some congregations? Hogwash. It's all truth. It's all truth. God help us to go about it in a way that the individuals can learn. Because if you're not growing and advancing in knowledge, you're on dangerous ground.
The church is on shaky ground. You know why? If you're not rooted and grounded in the fundamental truths and doctrines of this word, you are, as the scripture says, as a young child, you're easily deceived and blown away just like chaff in the wind. Ephesians 4.14, a verse we didn't read, but which was the next one if we had have read. Let me run back there right quick again. References that. Now this is in contrast of us being edified, coming in the unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect, a mature man, a mature Christian woman, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 13, and look what it prevents, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slay of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. And I'll say one other thing here. The devil's going to attack the weakest link. How's the devil going to get heresy into the church? With the weakest link. With the most unstable person. And I don't mean to point it just on one person or just that weakest individual. But again, the weak is what he's looking for because the weak is easily persuaded. The weak hear something say, hey, that sounds pretty good, and doesn't think about it. Does the Bible say that? You know? Those who are mature judge everything by the Word of God. Everything that comes by, they say, is that according to the Word of God? They're Bereans. They're not children. And they listen, and they say, they say this, the Bible says this, guess what? Those things go together. I believe that. That's what the mature believer does. And on the other hand, when he hears something or something's put in his hands or somebody tells him something, and he says, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not sounding quite like it's clicking with what the Bible teaches on this. Whoa, I don't want no part of that. But if you don't know the difference, you're going to think it's good and you're going to bring it to church. And guess what? You're sowing a seed of heresy or discord. The devil loves that. So again, our attitude should be, am I grounded enough that I can not be a detriment or a vessel by which Satan can use to bring the tear doctrine into the church, you see? That's a motivation to grow, isn't it? Knowledge. We don't want to be the weak link, do you? You don't want to be that unstable little child that somebody can tell you something and you just swallow it hook, line, and sinker without consulting the Word of God. No, we want to be Bereans. We verify it. And when you're sure about it, then you can discuss it with the church and everybody else. And guess what? We'll all be edified if it's truth. Second thing is in holiness. And I'll say right up front, if you don't grow in knowledge of the Word of God, there's not going to be much holiness in your life. Because holiness is the doing of what you know. Think about it. That's what it is. Holiness is application of knowledge. And if you don't have the knowledge of how to be holy, you can't be holy. Holiness is achieved by knowledge of the Word of God. If you don't know what the Word of God says, you think it's okay to do so-and-so. And you do it, and that's an unholy thing, or sin. Or somebody deceives you into thinking it's okay when the Word of God says it's not. A lot of that going on in Christianity today. Why, why are churches being misled with all these, I say churches, I don't know if some of them's churches or not, the way they're going, but practicing so many obviously unscriptural, unbiblical things. 
Why do they have councils concerning homosexuality or the ordaining of women or transgender or anything else in church? The Bible's clear. You don't need a council. I'm not bragging, but I can tell you in 30 seconds. Why is there not holiness in it? No knowledge. If you're ignorant of what the Bible says, you're going to be unholy. The only way to holiness is knowing what the Scripture says and performing it. So knowledge first, holiness follows later. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm sorry. And verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's a proportion there in that verse. You're not going to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God unless you're cleansing yourselves from filthiness of the flesh. If you don't know what filthiness of the flesh is according to the Word of God, then you can't be holy. Okay, so knowledge is fundamental in order for this to be accomplished. Back to Ephesians 4 again in verse 24, that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So denying the old man, feeding the new man, is how holiness occurs. And this again is your responsibility. It doesn't matter how good or how efficient the preacher is in giving you the truth all he I can do is give it to you that's my duty I will be judged on that every preacher every God called man will be judged on how number one he fed the flock what he fed them how he fed them how consistently he fed them did he give them the whole counsel of God but I can't make you believe it and I certainly can't make you put it into practice. But once I've given it to you, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. And there's your accountability. And when I say that, I'm not saying that that I'm irresponsible. No, I, I live by the same standard. The very things I preach to you are just as applicable to me as they are you. I'm a part of this body too. So as a disciple, as a pupil, it is our imperative that we apply what we learn, that we hear and put it into practice. I think Peter said it again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, but as he which hath called you is holy, so you be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That's living your life, your behavior, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And again I say, without knowledge of how to do that, you cannot do that see here. I think Peter said something in 2 Peter also in conjunction with that. 2 Peter Yes, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And then down to verse 11 uh, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And again, we put those, I'm just putting those two together there to show you again that it's based upon what you have heard, what has been spoken to you, that you are 
put into practice those things that make you holy. The final third thing is advancement in comfort. And again, the order is so vitally important. If you're not advancing in knowledge, you won't advance in holiness. If you're advancing in knowledge and in holiness, then and only then can you advance in comfort. In comfort. And of course, we think of comfort, and we think, what, probably 99.9% of us, if asked what does comfort mean, we say, feel good, right? I mean, you know, it's just kind of what natural comes to mind, isn't it? But again, we're a church. It's not about feeling good. It's about the spiritual realm. But in comfort is the effect of having knowledge, maturity, and holiness. And this is the only way you'll have real comfort. Why are so many quote-unquote Christians discomforted in this day? What I've just said. Number one, most of them are not very grounded or haven't been taught truth, don't know truth. They have no knowledge of things that babies in Christ should know. Failure of the church, failure of the pastor, or failure for them to hear it and get it when they're given to it. One or the other, but there's a failure somewhere. Why aren't their lives holy? They don't have knowledge. And you know, you just got to trace this back to the root in that respect. So no wonder they're discomforted. But we are to have comfort in that regard. And again, I'm talking about feeling good because in comfort literally means to call to one side. Okay? Think about that. That's comfort. The comfort of another person by your side not alone well first and foremost who do we need by our side the Lord and the devil would have us to think that we need somebody rather than the Lord I mean he will do that where we depend on people rather than the Lord people are not a substitute for the Lord read the Psalms we need the Lord first by our side but we also through the instrumentality of the Lord, need other people. Need other people. Do we want somebody by our side to strengthen and encourage us that is weak themselves? It's hard for a cripple to help a cripple. I mean, you know, blind lead the blind, they both go in the ditch. I mean, if you're the cripple, or you're the one with the problem, you're the one that needs help, you not only need the Lord, but you need somebody strong by your side. Right? You need somebody that has a knowledge of the Word of God. You need somebody that is practicing what they know, living a life of holiness, and guess what? They're qualified to help you. That type of person can come by another person's side and help them. To call to one side, either by way of exhortation or consolation, not just when somebody dies or you're having a hard time or you're sick or what, just somebody there to console you, we need that. That's all well and good. But we need people by our side to exhort us on the sunny days, in the good times. We're to be there then, not just in the cloudy days and the bad times. That's the common thing, isn't it? We think we don't need the Lord on the sunny days. We don't need no help from brothers and sisters on, on the sunny. No, we always need help in that respect. So the Lord to our sides, saints, secondarily. And think about that. 
If you have the Lord on holding one you up on one side and the saints holding you up on the other, I'd say you're in pretty good hands, wouldn't you? I mean, it don't get no better than that for a Christian. We know the Lord cares. And we've got a brother and sister holding us up on the other side. We know they care. We know the church cares. And it just don't get any better than that. It's not about a feel good. As much as it is an encouragement, a strengthening, a security. I mean, think about that again. This is all spiritual. This is, this is what God does. This is what God does through the Holy Spirit. And this is what God does through the Holy Spirit through other people. To be undergirded. To feel their strength under your arms. In your weakness or whatever. And let me just kind of trace this on out. If, if you feel encouraged in that way, you feel their strength strengthening you and that's literally what you feel isn't it when somebody was to grab you under the arm and hold you up maintain you help you walk or whatever it may be it's their strength in the absence of your strength their ability in absence of your ability at that time that's encouraging you right that's that's securing you you feel like you might fall because you don't have that, but with them there, you feel like you can't fall. And when you feel like that, and you get to that point of security, guess what comes next? You're content. You're not worried about it. You're not worried about what was going to happen when you were all alone. That doesn't bother you then because you feel secure now. And you're content that it's all going to be all right. And that contentment naturally gives you a peace. Guess what? If we fall now, we're all going to fall together. Hey, I got peace with that. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Second Thessalonians. We'll read the scripture too and wrap this up. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse sixteen and seventeen. Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and a good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. Here again, this is, this is the Lord doing this, right? But the Lord can use other people to do that. And indeed, He does. And it's good for both parties. Because guess what? Today you may need help. Tomorrow you may need to help somebody else. And if you've received help, you know how to help. I mean, it's kind of a contagious thing in that respect, right? First uh, Thessalonians 3, 2, I sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you, to comfort you concerning your faith. If he's going to comfort them concerning their faith, what's he going to do? He's not there to make them feel good. If he's going to comfort them concerning their faith, Timothy's going to be seeking to see that they grow in knowledge and holiness. How's he going to do that? By giving them the truth of God's Word. So it's not about a fuzzy feel-good. That's, that's the devil's playground again. This goes deeper than that. It's that inward spiritual stability that we're talking about. And they, I think this went on in the Thessalonians here 
uh, 4.18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That's concerning, uh, uh, you know, our glorification, etc. Um, chapter 5, verse 11. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another as also you do. And there again, that word there really tells us that it means to stand by the side to exhort or to encourage. And notice it says, yourself together and edify one another even as you do. Well, if they do it, why do you tell them to do it? Because again, the things like I said, these things have to be cultivated. Because they disintegrate quickly when you quit striving. Or you quit cultivating. I mean, it's just like a flower out here in New Mexico. You quit watering it for a day and you're going to see the difference the second day. It happens quick. These things are fragile, and they must be maintained. Verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, and warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded. Stand by their side. Exhort them. Encourage them in that regard. To conclude quickly here, this portion of our covenant, again, going back to where we started, it is our love for Christ, our Savior, and our desire to please Him, to be obedient to Him, that motivates us to these things, first and foremost. If you don't have that, you ain't going to get far. You're not going to be much of excess. You're going to fall on your face. You're going to be flat. As long as your first love is intact for Christ, for Him, above all else, I want to please Him regardless of who I may offend in the process. I want obedient to Him because that's all that's going to matter in the end. you got the right motivation to go forward. Naturally, if you have that, you cannot help but love one another in spite of who that one another is. And that one another can love you in spite of who you are. That's what John talks about. And therefore, in so doing, we commit or pledge ourselves to one another because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, don't we? And we have that mutual willingness to strive together. If we're going to agonize for Christ in this world, why not agonize together? That's exactly what the church is called to do, is it not? We have that desire to go forward, to advance, to improve as we can. And it depends on our knowledge, our holiness, and how qualified we are to comfort one another so we could put it in so many ways but if you're not a good soldier how are you going to be a good comrade to your fellow soldiers and when everybody takes that guess what you don't have a bunch of soldiers you got a unit then you got a squad you don't have individuals you've got a unit and that's what a church is meant to be and this is all done for what his glory our edification Wow, the Lord had a wonderful plan for His church and for His people. What a privilege to be a part of it.